The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 2, verses 2 through 11. Jesus also invited to the wedding his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Thank you very much for reading that passage of scripture. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right. All right. Well, um, delight to be here with you again. Um, so I serve at Christ Press as a scholar in residence, although my time here is quite limited in terms of being able to um, come and speak and almost no interaction with you. As soon as I'm done, I got to drive back to uh, the old Hickory location to preach for the 11 o'clock service. But I work literally just across the street from here. I, I teach in the Divinity School and have done so for the last. 13 years, so it's always a great delight to come back to my neck of woods. So um, today's sermon is about wine and water and the whole mystery that Jesus enters into our midst with that promise of turning water into wine in our lives. Um, I would like for us to read this together if it is okay. Can you all read, see it from the back? If not, you can help me. So. Um, What we will encounter today, as we have read and heard the passage of Scripture, is that at one level, it is about water into wine at a village wedding in first century Palestine. At another level, as we are encountering in the 21st century Nashville, Tennessee, United States of America, you're not expecting Jesus to do that. You're not really expecting a bottle of water that I have over there and then somehow turning that into wine. Then what are we expecting? Right? So I think it's, a, it's an important question to ask. This is actually from a 6th century Christian named Gregory the Great and in his uh, commentary on the book of Job. And therein, herein, he actually explains for us in a beautiful way. It's one of my favorite passages that actually help us to understand both the simple profundity of Scripture as well as the profound simplicity of Scripture, meaning even a third grader can read the Bible and understand something really meaningful, as well as somebody who spent one's entire life as a you know, New Testament or Old Testament scholar can still find some things that are new for them. So can we read it together? Ready? The Word of God, by the mysteries which it contains, exercises the understanding of the wise, 
So usually by what presents itself on the outside, it nurses the simple-minded. It presents in open day that from which babies may be fed. It keeps in secret that whereby men of a loftier range may be held in suspense of admiration. It is, as it were, a kind of river, if I may so compare, which is both shallow and deep, wherein both the lamb can walk and the elephant can swim. I love it when it says, both the lamb can walk and the elephant can swim. I was going to show a video of elephant actually swimming, and you can probably do that after lunch today. Just go Google that. And look at the, I mean, so both, think about the scripture's profundity and simplicity. Even a lamb, tiny lamb, can walk in the river of the word of God, as well as an elephant swimming and not touching the bottom of it. So in that desire to encounter the word of God, let's pray one more time. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that we will set aside all of our misgivings about you, misconceptions about you, about your goodness, and how that goodness is manifested both globally as well as locally, institutionally as well as individually. Lord, we bring with us many bags, and it is indeed that place where our bags are claimed by you. So pray that you will meet us in the liturgy of the word, read and proclaimed, and through it may you manifest your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's text is ostensibly about Jesus going to a wedding in a village at Cana. In other words, a rather obscure place in our cultural geography. There he helps this groom's family to avoid a major faux pas or mishap in running out of wine. Going to a birthday party for a third grader and realize that you don't have the cake. Going to a party or, you know, some kind of dinner party and you realize that you've just run out of chicken. Going to a wedding, especially in a first century Jewish wedding, and realize that you're about to run out of wine. Then light returns afterward to jolly old celebration of the coming together of not merely two individuals, but two families and villages, etc. Before we delve into the specific points from this text, I would like to start by making some observations about what people, perhaps both inside and outside the church, assume about Christianity. So today's story about Jesus turning water into wine, but many people are afraid, including myself, that if they came to Jesus, he will turn their wine into water. You know what I mean? I was uh, as pagan as the days long until I was a junior in college. And one of the fears that I had about becoming a Christian was that I would not be able to do the things that I was doing, namely fun things. And Jesus was a ba basically a killjoy God or killjoy being. And so I was afraid that by coming to Jesus, he will turn my wine into water. So I grew up both in Seoul, Korea, as well as outside of Philadelphia and lived in the East Coast until about 13 years ago in 2006. And so in the Northeast, there are probably a little bit more non-Christians than Christians. And I, as I work with students in England, as well as in Boston, as well as in Nashville, uh, as a professor, what I come to realize is that for many non-Christians, they actually have this conception of Christianity. They think that by becoming a Christian, by following Jesus, their life as they know it as fun, whatever that fun may be, will stop. 
In other words, they're afraid that Jesus is going to turn their wine into water. If you, if you don't remember much else from this sermon, dwell on this, please. Do I think Jesus is turning water into wine in my life right now? Thereby giving more joy and delight in my journey toward himself? Or do I think Jesus is turning my vintage wine into tap water, thereby giving me a set of rules to follow and behaviors to change? If you think like that, you're not alone. Friedrich Nietzsche is perhaps best known in pop culture as the guy who said, what does not kill us simply makes us stronger. Whether it is a Guinness beer commercial, a song by it was Katy Perry or somebody like that, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But much more than that, Nietzsche was an astute observer of culture and human behavior in 19th century Germany, indeed all of Europe, especially about Christianity. He said there are two types of ideas about human foundations and flourishing. One is Apollonian, based upon Apollo, the deity, the Greek god of reason, and Dionysian, based upon Dionysius, the Greek god of celebration and parties. And there are two ways of looking at the world. Apollonian ideals are based upon thinking, self-controlled, rational, logical, ordered. It is a dream state toward which we aspire, principle of individuation, value for human order and culture, and human beings are objects. Whereas Dionysian view, which he prefers far much, is feeling rather than thinking, passionate rather than self-controlled, irrational rather than rational, instinctual, chaotic rather than ordered, state of intoxication rather than dream state, wholeness of existence rather than principle of individualism, and celebration of nature rather than value for human culture, and human beings as subjects, as queens and kings and monarchs, rather than objects. For Nietzsche, Christianity, especially Christianity in Europe in 19th century and before, was responsible for creating such a killjoy culture that represses human desires, redirects it to something much more meaningless and vacuous. To quote him here, he says, Christianity was from the beginning essentially and fundamentally life's nausea and disgust with life. Merely concealed behind, masked by, dressed up as faith in another or better life. In his book, The Birth of Tragedy. So if Christianity is looked upon as basically improving of your manners and behavior control, whether seen as the Roman Catholic Inquisition or New England examples of Salem witch hunt, perhaps Nietzsche has a point. But that's not all the story. Christianity is not, nor should it be, ultimately about what to do and what not to do. It's not behavioristic reductionism. One can't say, I didn't drink, I didn't play cards, I didn't go to movies, I didn't, and God forbid, I didn't go dancing, so Lord, let me into heaven, please. Yay, that's not going to work. No, it seems that judging from that interpretation of Christianity, Nietzsche is spot on. But then the question becomes, is that portrait of Christianity the right one? Is Christianity really about a rule of set of rules and you can't do that anymore, you shouldn't be following that any longer? Is that really it? Is that a comprehensive view of Christianity? Because in today's text, we see the first miracle that Jesus performs at a wedding party in Cana. And what does he do? He turns water into wine. So at first blush, you cannot say that Jesus is much more repressive deity or he's against people having fun. 
I almost gave a different title to today's sermon, calling it like Encountering Jesus, hashtag Cana with flowing vintage wine. Jesus does this. Jesus is actually here giving life to the full and giving things that people are aspiring after and thirsting after. And yet at the same time, those things that will satisfy your thirst are pointers to something greater and grander and bigger and better. And that's the key to Jesus's mission and message. So I have three points to this sermon, plus one that will be as a kind of a coda to all of it. First point is, party's almost over, no more wine. Second point is, party's just getting good, Jesus the wine giver. Third point is, invitation to a real party, Jesus as the wine himself. And the final point, coda, is, what about me, Lord? I don't feel invited to the party. Party's almost over. No more wine. Verse 3. Let's look at that verse right here. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And so one of the things that I think you already know about the Gospel of John, in contrast to the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that the Gospel of John is not as chronologically ordered as the other three. Rather, the Gospel of John is much more thematically ordered, and his point, burden of proof as an author, is to show you that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the aspirations and longings of the people of Israel, and that in believing in the name of Jesus, in the person of Christ, you will have eternal life. That's the burden of proof. And what he does is that he really kind of plays with the stories of Jesus and places them in particular order in order to really show, demonstrate convincingly that Jesus is it. And so the first miracle that he writes about is today's text. Isn't that interesting? The very first miracle is turning water into wine. And so let's have a look. So we know, we'll note a few things about, um, and thus John is very careful with his word selections. There are these signaling phrases that will be really important for us to be able to follow through the rest of the gospel, which we may not get to do today, but at least as a kind of a, a indicator of maybe perhaps you might want to dig deeper or delve further. But one of the things that we note here in life as well as in this text is that we all will run out of wine. Whatever that wine is, that source of giving joy to you, that source of whatever that you need in order for you to have a good time in life. At this particular wedding party, what they needed was wine. And did you know that most of Jewish weddings in the first century context lasted what? Six hours? No, six days. That means it was a major feast. It was a huge party. It was a true celebration of gift as life. Um, gift of life as God intended it, right? I don't know if you've been to a Jewish wedding. I mean, I, I always loved, I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So there was a lot of, I was about 40% Jewish and my college was about 35% Jewish. And so I did go to a few Jewish weddings shortly after graduation. And I noticed that Jewish weddings were, I don't know what it is, like much more fun. I think just, just so much more dancing and drinking and just enjoying life as, as God has given it to them. So think of this really, really well choreographed and planned party, and they're really having a good time of it. And then all of a sudden, the mother of Jesus realizes, as she was told by somebody, that they had run out of wine. Now, this could be a real embarrassment, right? 
Imagine you, you're having a party, right? Imagine you're having a get-together with about 20 people and caterer didn't show up, right? And you have to kind of scramble to make something happen. So you're really facing this potential huge embarrassment and think of that kind of mindset as you read this text. All right, so we will run out of wine. The most fantastic roller coaster at Disney World or Universal Studio will come to an end, and you will have to wait for another six hours to get on it again. Right? And that's the wine that you want. I mean, when you go to this particular theme park, the wine is that roller coaster ride or whatever it is. We love parties and good feasts, and so we are actually made for that, as God intended it as such. So if you remember in Genesis chapter 2, in divine ordering of all things and divine um, orchestration of all of human life, God says to the first parents, Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you shall not eat from this one tree. Notice that. God didn't say you can only eat from one or two trees. God says you can enjoy the whole variety of fruits here. God is not some stingy or parsimonious deity. God is not saying you can only enjoy just a couple of things because I really don't want you to have fun. I really don't want you to enjoy. You see, in the first question of Westminster Shorter Catechism is what's the chief end of the human person? And the chief end of man is to what? Enjoy God and to glorify God forever. Meaning something like this. You enjoy God, you glorify God by enjoying God. You glorify God, you give glory to God, a word that we'll see later on in this passage. You give glory to God by seeing God as the source of joy, source of someone who's not going to take away your, your desire, but fulfill it, make it truly real. And so this is what God is about. And so Jesus comes and John really wants to emphasize that because for John, the real important word is life. Life as we know it. And it says, you know, in what for God so what? Love the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Life is such an important thing. And life to the full, life to the maximal pleasures forevermore. But pleasures as God designs and deems it. Yet one of the main problems that I deal with eating disorder. God said, you will eat anything here, but you will not eat from this. And the way that we got in trouble as human race is our eating disorder. Not eating the things that we should be eating, but eating the things we shouldn't be eating that led us into cosmic disorder, moral chaos. So eating and drinking is quite important. And you know, here's the other irony. In this story, as we read it, almost no one knew what they had almost, that they had almost run out of wine. And that is kind of symptomatic of life. You know, God, in speaking about common grace, God is his giver and source of all good things for Christians and non-Christians, ancient and contemporaries, Eastern and Western. Because if you believe, have a robust theology of God's providence, that means God is over all things. That means God is a giver and a keeper of all things. And yet so many of us do not realize or acknowledge God is that. Unless some bad things happen to us and in our insurance policies, they're indicated as acts of God, right? So I think we have the human proclivity to assume or assert some things about God. When bad things happen, that's an act of God. What about when good things happen? We tend to forget, not just for non-Christians, but for Christians as well. No one knew, almost no one knew that they had almost run out of wine. The servants, I think, knew because Mary tells them, do whatever he tells you. You know, it's sometimes there is that irony. So 
When I was in college, I might have mentioned this to you, um, I, I did a few things and one of the things that I did was I, I, I was a DJ for a college radio station and also I did a few private parties and so that's what I really enjoyed uh, doing uh, both before and after I became a Christian and I was DJing a party and this is before I, was, I became a Christian as a junior in college and so I was DJing a party and there was a pretty big party and then one of the, one of the persons there at the party came up and requested a song as is you know, likely to happen. And she said, can you play this song? And so I went to college in the 80s. And you might remember, some of you look like you went to college in the 80s. Do you remember Bonnie Tyler? She had a song called Total Eclipse of the Heart. And you don't remember that song? Nobody, okay, good. I right, remember this. So you know that there was actually a dance version to this song and there was a disco version. So this woman came up and said, can you play this song for me? And I, I, I need a song. I didn't, and I actually had the, the, the extended uh, dance disco remix version. So... Do you know what, what the words are? It says, once upon a time I was falling in love, now I'm only falling apart, total eclipse at a heart. Once upon a time I was falling in love, now I'm only falling apart, total eclipse at a heart. And so here I was, I was a non-Christian guy, and, and I'm playing this song, and people are dancing, and they're having a good time, and I notice some kind of irony. Like, this is a sad song. It's a song that says, once upon a time I was falling, but now I'm just completely falling apart and totally eclipse at the heart. And we were dancing. I was playing the music. I was happy that they were dancing. And that seemed to me like a, a very interesting irony. Made a lot more sense after I became a Christian. But yet we do. I'm not blaming them. I was right there with them. You see, sometimes we don't even notice. We don't even notice that we have almost no more wine until somebody tells us, party's almost over, no more wine. Second point then, party's just getting good. Jesus, the wine giver. See, Jesus, far from being a party pooper, as somebody said he was a party popper, turns water into wine. Notice with me a few things here. Verse one, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. What did you just hear? On the third day. Let me ask you, in John's theology, in John's thinking about things, what is the significance of the third day? Sorry? The resurrection, that's right. The third day had a real significance for John and the rest of the early church community. The third day is John's way of saying, wait a minute, I want you to notice something. Because John is really clever like this. John is always signaling, signaling the reader, hey, watch this. It is almost as if if he were to write it in today's kind of, you know, um, he would have some kind of emoji or I don't know, like he would have some kind of way of signaling to the readers like, hey, read this carefully or boldface it or italicize it. It is like the third day is very important because what he's going to tell us is that how the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of all of our dreams and aspirations, earthly and heavenly, is actually going to be found in Jesus. And it is really connected with the resurrection of Jesus and so he's letting us know on the third day, he uh, does this. And then fourthly, uh, in, in, in the fourth verse, I should say, verse four tells us, as Jesus is told by his mother, do something, they have no more wine. Jesus says, why do you involve me, woman? My hour has not yet come. So when Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come, is not. Jesus being disobedient because in the same way in John 19 when he's on the cross, he will say, woman, here is your son. So it's not a sign of irritation or anger or petulance or disobedience. It's just addressing her. But the point to remember here is his sentence, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? So another word, another key word in John's theology is my hour. 
What did Jesus mean by my hour? Because in six other places in the Gospel of John, he will use that word, phrase, my hour, to talk about his mission and messianic identity. John 730, 8:20, 12:23, 12:37, 13:1 and 17:1 in all these texts. John has Jesus saying, my hour has come. Here he says, my hour has not yet come. And here's something really, really interesting too. Because after Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what is the response of Mary? Look at that verse in verse 5. His mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. So somehow she knows her son. Somehow she knows that he's going to do something. Even though his hour has not yet come, but he's going to do something to intervene. So she's expecting some kind of intervention. Not really sure what that is, but yet she's expressing her entire trust in her son's willingness to come to aid in this potential scene of embarrassment. Do whatever he tells you. And then what else do we see here in verse 6? It tells us that there were stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. John, let us not forget, was a very, very observant, strict Jew. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the Messiah. He's not being anti-Semitic here when he says this. What he's wanting to establish is a theology of fulfillment. See, these six water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, did they fulfill their role? Yes, they did. These water jars containing water will help the Jewish uh, persons to, to clean themselves, cleanse themselves, and go through the rite of purification and be prepared rightly to worship God. And yet, that water that was contained in these water jars will become the very water soon to become wine. Think about that. What is John trying to communicate here among other things? One thing is this. That John is trying to communicate that Jesus' action as the Messiah will fulfill all the longings of the people of Israel who, are living in, who had lived in exiles, who, had, who are currently living as, what, under the colonized, uh, colonial power, imperial power of Rome. They don't have national sovereignty. They don't have their own identity as a separate nation. And not only that, but they are longing for the Messiah to come and rightly reorder worship. And so they were waiting for this person. And all of these rites of purification were pointing towards something that God will do in the Messianic figure, according to John here in this text. Because it is, so John is not mincing words or wasting any expressions. He wants you to see that it is the water that contained the water for Jewish rites of purification. And that same water will be turned into wine to give people the sense of fulfillment, fulfillment and joy, which the Jewish rites of purification were, they were giving, but they were pointers to something much bigger and broader in scope. For example, Jewish rites of purification were uh, limited to Jews, but the message of Jesus Christ was going to be Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish rites of purification were primarily in Judea and diaspora Jewish communities, but the message of Jesus Christ was going to be global in its scope and intentions and pretensions and ambitions. And so we need to remember that. So rather than demonizing Jewish religion and practices, Jesus is saying, look here, Moses wrote about me. And verse 10 tells us about the irony. See, the irony is this, right? When you go to a party, I guess, um, 
yeah, I, I suppose that's probably true that um, you, th- you put out your best stuff first because people, they have their senses a little bit dulled after you have a couple of glasses of wine. You can't tell the difference and you put out the not so expensive wine. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's not our self-conscious policy, but yeah, I think I'll usually save something, you know, I put out the best really early on and then whatever. You know what I'm talking about. If you don't, then blessed are you. All right, so, <laughs> so here, the, the master of the banquet says, you know what? You're kind of different because most people will put out their best stuff first and then exchange it with the less expensive stuff, but you've done the opposite. You've actually saved the best until now. And there's a real kind of interesting ironic juxtaposition with the, what the master of banquet says unknowingly about the actions of God in Jesus Christ. That those prophets and prophetesses and those people had come and have done God's work, but the best was saved until now. And he was there initially as guest, but soon to take over as host of the party. Jesus as the wine giver. Thirdly, and as we wrap things up, it is invitation to a real party, Jesus as the wine himself. So notice with me in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So the question, the word their glory is doxa, and it's doxology, and so doxa, the word glory shows up throughout the Gospel of John as a way of knowing, and it is in, the, in, in, in Hebrew, that's, the word is kabod, which means like heaviness, weightiness. So I think C.S. Lewis has a book called The Weight of Glory, and it is that. It is the weightiness of this glory. Very serious and somber, but also at the same time, something that causes jubilation, something that causes us to realize, aha, That is what my life is all about. Glory is redirecting our misguided desires and thoughts and aims and saying, here is what human destiny and desires ought to be all directed. What is the glory? See, human beings like you and me, ancient, contemporary, Eastern, Western, Christian, non-Christian, are all created with the capacity for enjoyment, joy. All cultures seem to have pursuits of joy through music, through arts, through food, through drink, through sex, through children, through play. All of these things are conglomerate efforts of human race to pursue joy. But in the end though, many, most cultures are aware of the fact that these are helpful things, but there's something beyond so often expressing themselves in worship. But in most religions, all of these things are really present. But one thing that I think is really, really unique about Christianity is that it presents God as the one who is going to be the wine himself. And let me unpack that. See, Christianity presents Jesus as the one that we're reading about here as the obscure guest in this party who becomes a host, and not many people even knew about that, as the God incarnate who becomes the wine himself. That means God suffers with us and for us in Jesus Christ. That God is not going to remain some separate, solitary, far-off, distant deity. God's going to actually embrace humanity in order to make us divine. So what does this glory mean? That Jesus turned water into wine. Did it merely demonstrate Jesus' power over creation, as some have opined, and I think rightly so. That it does show Jesus' power over creation. As Alexander Pope said, wine, the water saw their maker and it blushed. Thus it became wine. Oh, you're here, and then it became wine. 
Wine also, I don't know if you're a wine drinker, but um, I like port a lot. So I did my graduate studies in England, and one thing I learned while in graduate school, my wife and I would always go to this, every Friday, uh, my college would have formal hall. And that means as poor graduate students, we could actually have a real nice meal for about $10 for a couple. I mean, how can you beat that, right? It's a four-course meal, right? Appetizer, so pre-prandials, a before-dinner drink, appetizer, main course, dessert, and dessert wine. And I never really had port before, but I, I just really fell in love with it. So if you come to my house sometime, you will always see me serving you port. And so port is like really a fantastic wine. And that wine always, every time I taste port, it takes me back to 1997 to 2001. It just almost has an instantaneous effect. It takes me back there and just brings back the memories of beauty and goodness and just, just friendship and merrymaking and good food and Banana pudding, something I never, bread pudding, and just bread pudding is the best actually in England, right? I mean, I'm going off tangent here, my apologies, but wine is a joy giver. Wine does give joy, right? I mean, at least for me, when I taste port, it gives me joy. But they're actually pointing me as I'm drinking more thoughtfully and utilizing these earthly gifts more thoughtfully, they're pointers to something bigger. They're pointers to the wine giver. They're pointers to the grape, the, the vineyard lord, vineyard maker. That means they're all pointers to something bigger and better than itself, namely God. That Jesus himself as a true bread and wine. In this gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. In this same gospel, Jesus says, my, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part with me. That means Jesus himself will be that wine as we will participate here, whether it is through wine or grape juice. These are elements that symbolize and unite us to the risen Christ in heaven. And furthermore, it is a reference to the eschatological marriage banquet in Revelation chapter 19. Meaning that eschatological meaning the final wonderful banquet they're all waiting for. Think of the best party you've been to. The very best party so far in your life. What this text in Revelation is saying is, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think you've been to a good party? You think you've been to a nice, no, no, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because God says here, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And write this, Blessed are the, in, those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, said the angel to me. And he also said, these are the true words of God. All of us are invited to this party par excellence. All of us are invited to this party that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That Jesus is no longer a guest but takes over the party and becomes the host of the party. And in hosting this party, Jesus will wipe away all of our tears, all of our sorrows, no more diseases, no more depressions, no more death, no more. As it says in the Lord of the Rings in Return of the King, Sam asked, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to become untrue? What's happened to the world? Gandalf says, our great shadow has departed. And then Gandalf laughed and the sound was like music and like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Friends, we're like Sam. 
journeying through, forgetting what laughter might be like. And so Jesus says, you know what? Come to this party. I am the wine himself. Let me close with this fourth point. Because it is an important point to recognize. And that is, what about me, Lord? I don't feel invited to the party. As I was finishing up this sermon, I I just had three points. But then I was thinking about my other life. You know, my one life as a scholar in residence at Christ Press, but my my day job as a professor at Vanderbilt. I've been here for 13 years, and it seems that there's a genuine uptick of, of students taking their own lives, students struggling with depression, clinically and fits and starts, students feeling like life has no meaning. And that's, so I think in my 13 year of being at Vanderbilt and five years in Boston, a couple of years in England, I think there has been a steady incline. And in our community at large here at Christ Press, we're not immune from that. Some of us find weddings as reminders of our failures. Some of us find ourselves as being more down than up fighting depressions as I am and some of us are and feel that we can identify with the psalmist in Psalm 88. I want to encourage you to read Psalm 88. It'll read like Simon and Garfunkel's song, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, Here I Come to You Again. So let's take a listen. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I borne your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me my friend and my neighbor. And darkness is my closest friend. That's how the psalm ends. There's no happy ending. And you know what? At least for me, I'm so thankful to God that we have that psalm in the book of Psalms. Right? Sad songs can say so much. Sad songs can, I mean, this sad song, this sad melody without happy ending, reminds me of something really powerful and poignant. As I work with students who have depressions, as I work with myself who has depression, I'm given the ray of hope. I'm given the ray of hope in this way. Jesus did not stay at the wedding and that was it. The same person who said, fill the jars with water, is the same person, right, who offered the abundance of wine is the same person who on the cross said, I thirst. Someone who gave abundance of water and wine says, I am thirsty. He tasted thirst. He tasted hunger. He tasted death. And he experienced separation from his father for you and for me. So that even in the midst of, no, actually, precisely in the midst of feeling that we're damned and deserted by God, we can turn ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit to Jesus, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you feel like you are not invited to the wedding? You may feel that way. I often feel that way. Sometimes these wonderful words of God come in one ear, out the other. If you're like that, take a listen. You see, friends, Jesus, who said, fill these waters with jars with water, is the one who thirsted for you and for me. Jesus, who actually felt that fullness of fellowship with the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, 
cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is as a perfect human being, he experienced these things so that you and I will not be forsaken eternally by the triune God. Let's come to this God as we come to the table with joy, hope, faith, and love. All of our brokenness, all of our feeling deserted, they are the very reason why Christ came into this world to make us whole. Let's pray.